Hello, friends. Welcome back. It's Hit Factory. Aaron here on this side of the mic. No Carly this week, but fear not. We have a fantastic guest lined up for today's episode. Uh, He is the director programmer of the Drunken Film Fest Oakland and co-host of Wiseman Podcast. Arlen Golden is here with me. Arlen, welcome to the show. Hey, Aaron. Uh, thanks for having me. I guess I guess uh, if it makes you feel more comfortable, you could just call me Arlie. Arlie? <laughs> there we go. I like that. That's actually pretty smart. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've been trying to commission some people who are really, really good at emulating Carly's voice. <laughs> we can just kind of put in here and have them record a couple of asides that I can just throw in. Just, you know, kind of just like stock sounds. Well, yeah. <laughs> well yeah uh you know all silliness aside uh th- thank you so much for having me super excited to hop on with you and, and have the opportunity to talk about uh one of my favorite movies ever one of arlen's favorite movies uh a movie that i shamefully just came to uh in preparation for for this podcast, but I had been holding off because Arlen, you had mentioned to me that this is one that uh, was at the very tip top of your list to, to discuss. Oh, for sure. uh, and that film is American Movie. I'll, now that I'm here, I can finally forgive you and Sean for the betrayal of discussing Hoop <laughs> Dreams without me, uh, which which would have been the, the tippiest top. But, you know, I think as we'll get into probably like there, there are a lot of connections um, between this film and hoop dreams, which, which is the only film I would really rank higher on like my personal canon. Um, But, but it was interesting doing some research on this and learning that Steve James was um, a consultant on the film and he was actually interviewed about it in a a New York times profile. So like those, uh, those connections I've always seen made, made a lot more sense after learning that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I had no idea that, uh, that does explain quite a bit about this film. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but, but the film was, uh, released in 1999. It's directed by Chris Smith Mm -hmm. and it, uh, profiles a really fascinating character, uh, by the name of Mark Borchardt, an amateur filmmaker, uh, living near, uh, and around Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I mean, kind of a once in a lifetime subject, it really Mm -hmm. feels like he's just such a a fascinating character himself. And I can I say character because that it really does obviously feel like there is a a projection of a version of him going on in this movie. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not the real Mark Borchardt. Um, Yeah. And I'm I'm just fascinated, Arlen, to know, like, what your thoughts are about him. What are your thoughts are about the movie? Like how how you first came to this film and and how you discovered it and, and how it's evolved with you over time. Sure. Um, Well, I guess, you know, uh, a a few things there. So I I agree first with with what you were saying um, as far as like the uh, performative nature, you know, the character versus subject versus authentic, you know, self thing. Um, And it's something that that Mark actually spoke on. directly in an interview he did shortly after the film came out with uh, Kevin Lindemuth, uh, which is like on his like old film blog. It looks like a hmm. GeoCities type thing. Um, but, you know, he he was saying that he's absolutely like doing a version of himself. He's like consciously performing this like kind of uh, character uh, version of Mark that's to 
help him promote himself and his filmmaking, you know? So like something that is often a topic of conversation, I think more so now than it was when it came out is, uh, and, and across the board with docs in general is this idea of like exploitation and like, when is it okay to laugh? When is it not? Uh, when is it inappropriate? Um, but Mark is like very consciously playing himself up and, uh, recognizing that like the reach of this film as like sort of an indie art house doc uh, is probably going to get him out there a lot more than he could uh, under his own power coming from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin, you know? Um, So, so that's, yeah, that's something we could talk about more, but I guess it just my personal um, like relationship to this film, you know, I think I, I probably first watched it, uh, junior high high school sometime not too long after it came out a few years after and uh i think i came to it from uh the video store it was just like at video adventure uh in evanston illinois there was like a perpetual uh it held a perpetual spot on one of the employees like staff picks shelves you know and i it was a it was a staff member i always uh trusted and i liked his taste and he, he'd turned me on to stuff like Eraserhead uh at a way too early age uh, um <laughs> but me and uh my buddy um brian gerson who's now like my uh, another documentary filmmaker and, and a collaborative partner you know, he, I really credit him for getting me into docs in general. And, you know, we started like a lot of people did with like Michael Moore, but like Hoop Dreams and American Movie were both like really, really big for us uh, being in and around Chicago, uh, seeing like a, a different kind of Midwest that was familiar in a way, uh, in a way that wasn't really the case in, in narrative cinema at the time, certainly. Um, and I mean, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm a doc guy, but I'm also kind of a silly guy. I like to laugh. And I mean, to me, this is the greatest comedy of the nineties, if not all time, you know, like profoundly funny movie it's, it's, and it, it's trying to be, you know, it's some, something Robert green, uh, recognizes the only one I really see talk about it is like, this film is like. Uh, structured and cut especially like a comedy you know it's playing that up like the way they they cut on certain lines or to punctuate a scene or or heighten the comedy which is actually something Weissman does a good deal as well but like it's very you know I think about the scene like when um Mike comes in really beaming after uh and they're like why are you so happy mike on thanksgiving or whatever <laughs> and then they cut to him in the basement and he's like i won 50 dollars on a scratcher and i don't want to tell him or they'll borrow money from me like that's yes. like <laughs> that's like something now that's so recognizable in something like the office you know or any of those comedies that are structured like you know a documentary or reality show just like the cutaway explanation of or or commentary on like what we just saw before you know this is like to me kind of like pioneering that to to some degree yeah that moment especially i i thought exactly like you of a lot of these kind of uh mockumentary sitcoms that have come to totally, prominence in yeah. the last like you know 15 20 years or so um and and felt like oh this is is very much of a piece with uh with those kinds of productions and uh you're right just an, an impossibly funny movie and oftentimes 
yes, it is. It is cut that way, but there's also just like such a hilarity uh, from the characters themselves and just their kind of conversations when the mm-hmm. camera sort of sits with them. I, I also love uh, the part where uh, Mark is talking with Mike and says something like, do you feel like it's kind of cathartic for you, Mike? I don't even <laughs> yeah. remember what he's referring to. But then then Mike says, oh, yeah, definitely. And he says, do you know what cathartic means? He's like, no. <laughs> Pretty damn cathartic, Mark. Yeah, no. I mean, they're, they're just rich, uh, real people. You know, this is the the one of the joys and pleasures of documentary filmmaking is just spending time with people who are otherwise you know never depicted on screen uh in really any kind of way and i think you know that that gets into maybe some of people's discomfort uh with them or with their their heavy presence in the film um is just like there's there's very little if you're not kind of a doc person there's very little like cinematic grammar for how to engage with these people in a way that's not like really playing up their their struggles and plights you know i feel like that's how we're most commonly shown you know like working class narratives in film um and this certainly has that but it also gives them like the humanity and dignity and and complexity to say like okay yeah this this exists and it's you know like a post Reagan de-unionized uh, milieu of like Rust Belt America. You know, this is like a, a factory town where all the factories have shut down. Um, but like, you know, there's still artistry and creativity and like hope and uh, humor and like just family. I mean, this is like, you know, a, I actually haven't seen any of those movies, but people always talk about like the fast and the furious series, you know, it's like, this is, this is like family canon, you know, like found family, you know, there's, there's Mark's lip, there's the Borchardt's, but there's also his like found family of all his filmmaking collaborators. That's just like really beautiful to, to see the film sort of blossom and explore. You heard it here first folks, fast and the furious American movie, (laughs) essentially the same film. Essentially the same. (laughs) His whole life is making this one film. You you have two hours tomorrow from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. and be an extra in a film. You get your name on the credits, man, as a producer. And of course, there'll be a whole crowd of people here. So we got to make like a line where people can't go. Have a hell of a lot of assistant directors saying, hey, hey, could you step back like five feet? I think my mom's gonna have to end up going out in the woods. I have my shopping to do. Okay, you gotta spread apart that way. All of the extras have just fell through, except for Mike Shank right there. We used to uh, do a lot of partying together, but I don't party anymore. <laughs> hey, Mike, make sure everyone has brown gloves. Does everyone have brown gloves? No, dude, dude, dude. I'm broke, man. I gotta get gas tomorrow. And dude's talking about making a feature film. Uh, the name of the film is Coven. Coven, Coven. Uh, Coven, uh, that's the proper pronunciation. No, no, Coven sounds like oven, man, and that's just, it doesn't work. She wants to be in your film, Bill. Oh, my gosh. You get your three grand back. It's the first line of the film, man. It's got to be on the money. It's all right. Uh... 
Okay, I believe we can do this. Shot 37 here where my head goes through the cover. Every time we got together, there was something that seemed to go wrong. Oh, dude. I'm sorry I tried to put your head in this. Take 30. Um, Cut. You gotta watch your teeth, too, because they clack a little bit when they loosen up in the mouth. Oh, now I see there's a flame there. Oh, no. What are you talking about, Ma? Check it out when you look at the scarecrows. Oh, you, I mean, you get it? Within weeks, the film will be cut, finished for multiple sales. What do you think about that? Multiple sales to whom? We get to see Americans and American dreams, and you won't walk away depressed after seeing this. This whole thing is turning into a theatrical mockery. You understand that, Mike? No. <laughs> well, you will. Would you buy this movie for $14.95? Hell yeah, man. If I can find 3,000 people like you across this country, man, I'm in business. There's a, sort of an equal measurement here of of that kind of comedy, of sort of the expressions of the absurdity of these characters and and their kind of goofball behavior. Uh, but there's a solemnity to this movie too that is is there really from the outset. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it and it isn't in a way that feels uh, demeaning. It's not in a way that feels like it's uh, you know trying to to paint Mark as some sort of deluded wacko or anything like mm-hmm. that. It just feels like you know he's somebody who's butting up constantly against the the limitations of his position, kind of you know structurally, socioeconomically, in in this space that he inhabits. And I. I, I I felt very sad at the end of this movie. There was like a, a tinge of hope, you know, you see like a, a story, you know, and, and then this dream sort of come to fruition by the end of it. But there is something about it that just really uh, just stuck with me and really just kind of pierced me in a way that I was not quite expecting from the film. Mm, yeah, I mean, well, there's a couple things like, well, it, it ends on this like. I agree, like kind of unexpected soliloquy from Uncle Bill that's just like who's this kind of mythological figure in the film. You know, he's like the guy on high making it all happen because he's funding the project. Um, but he also has this like just kind of like blase, like doesn't give a fuck attitude about all of this he like expresses multiple times he doesn't believe in mark or what he's doing (laughs) but like he has this this like poetry about any he like uh performs like a song earlier in the film but it closed it gives uncle bill the last line in this like soliloquy of just like kind of poetic lament and then it's over you know and you're like whoa damn but i mean i think there's also this thing watching this 20 plus years after it came out now you know i think seeing it at the time you're like all right what's next for mark you know are we gonna are we gonna see you know a project turn up is he gonna get funded from this you know but 20 years later and i mean you know we could talk about some of what came out of um after the film for mark um but like 20 years on he's not an established working filmmaker, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so we, we know that to some degree now, and it, it does um, affect probably the way we view the film uh, in hindsight. And, you know, to an extent too, Mark seems to have uh, distanced himself from the film and the project mm. and, and is rather reluctant to talk about the film uh, and, and some of the people associated with it now. And, uh, 
and uh, yeah, just just seems to have have kind of moved on and and passed this as as a record of a, a particular part of his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about Mark in the film. I don't think there's anywhere else we can really start with it. <laughs> sure, he, yeah. I, he, I mean, he is really just uh, an incredible subject. Uh, he's yeah. he's fascinating. He's equal parts kind of loony and uh and often poetic in ways that i think that maybe he doesn't even understand uh definitely he has this vision you know he he certainly has like a lot of passion behind his filmmaking and and even in some of the stuff that we see from his early reels he's not without a level of talent like there, there are images that you see that show like oh this guy actually does have some potential as a filmmaker he's not he's not a complete hack you know and and i think that that's a really uh compelling and necessary flourish of this film that it's mm-hmm. it's not someone who is uh completely without merit or completely without any sense of what he's doing it's someone who really probably given the means could make something very interesting over and over again yeah, you know, it's uh I to prep for this, I watched the DVD with the commentary which is uh Chris Smith, Sarah Price, the producer and sound recordist and mm-hmm. arguably co-director um and Mark and Mike and and um Chris Smith wanted to sort of set the record straight with Mark, I think because of something Amy Taubin said in her Village Voice review that that I thought was condescending about like him um, being in a state of like arrested development for the types mm-hmm. of films he cites as inspirational to him. Um, but to sort of set the record and Mark just kind of goes off. Oh yeah. Like, you know, Bergman, Fellini, Wells, uh, Scorsese, you know, kind of the, the Kubrick, like the normal kind of big pantheon canon folks, but you know, it's not just Tobe Hooper and, and George Romero, but I think, you know, as a Midwest regional filmmaker, you know, Romero showed the way, you know, Mm -hmm. he had the success. He did like a, you know, ultra low budget uh, genre piece and found success that way. And I think um, Sam Raimi in Evil Dead is another example, you know. Uh, So there's this sort of, you know, I could start to draw into hoop dreams, but like the, the way in which the the demographic of William and Arthur and Hoop Dreams is sort of sees this narrative of, of success in America of going to the NBA through basketball, you know, mm-hmm. and how that's this, you know, very far away, questionably achievable goal that they're nonetheless going to put everything into going after. Uh, for Mark and his ilk, you know, it's being an independent filmmaker and being a horror filmmaker, right? Like, cause, because that's the narrative you see the people from the kind of areas you grew up in achieving success through those means. And, you know, I, I was like, you know, seeing those early, like um, eight millimeter films was something that really resonated me as like a adolescent or teen at the time when I saw it, because I was making those kind of films on like a high eight camera, you know, with mm-hmm. like ketchup packets for squirts of blood and stuff, you know? And, and so I really connected and related on that level. Um, but I mean, I think um, as you see in Coven in like the actual film um, that he's making, like, you know, it, he's, he's definitely setting his sights for something more than just like straight, horror and like or like a slasher which just like kills and you know boobs and stuff like that like there's there's a lot 
you know, successful or unsuccessful, there's, there's a lot of like depth and um, adult themes, like in, in the narrative and the characterization of that film. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really appreciate the the connection that you're making there with hoop dreams, right? That there is this sort of single Avenue, a very selective Avenue yeah. through which these people uh, sort of see their dreams realized that that shows them a different way than the alternative, which is the life that is around them and this, mm-hmm. you know, kind of working class existence. And for Mark, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you begin to realize is kind of just like, uh, there's this contradiction to him, right? That he wants to do something that is rather subversive, that is kind of countercultural and, you know, and, and make these small and, and interesting horror films. Uh, but he's, he's been so ingrained with this, concept of the american dream and really here in in the late 90s really at the the place where any material reality of an american dream has really come to an end you know this is sunsetting and so it's it's fascinating to see him still be such a product of that kind of socialized project that idea of all of these things being driven by a material success by a level of security and and maybe you know fame and power and recognition all those things that come with it while also doing something that i you know when you think of people like a a romero or a toby hooper like you know they they of course did achieve success but you know they are not heralded Mm. on the level of of a lot of these major filmmakers you know they are not exactly the, the coppolas or the scorseses of the world for sure yeah, you know, it's it's um, something Janet Maslin noted in her New York Times review is like he has already achieved achieved the Amer- the reality of the American dream as it existed at that time, which is its absence, you know, like it's it's unachievability, mm-hmm. you know, he is is living the modern conception of of the American dream, uh, which is, you know, very depressing but, you know, accurate. Um in the interview, sorry, the the Linda Muth interview, you know, he he talks about wanting to exist outside of Hollywood. You know, he mm-hmm. want he wants to achieve success, you know, on a on a completely reasonable level of just like not having to struggle, being able to move out of his parents, you know, do something he's passionate about and just like be able to get by and pay his credit card bills and support his kids. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. like that's the, and, and he's pinning it all on the success of Coven and Northwestern, right? Like, like at the Coven premiere, he's going to his daddy's like, this is the start of your money back, you know? And like, like he needs it to be, he really needs that to be true. Um, but yeah, in that, in that interview, he talks about like, having meetings with people and, you know, some web company wanting to work with them, but they were going to take creative control and it's not something he was willing to entertain, you know? So like he, he does have this like maverick streak about him, um, you know, whether or not that's like to his benefit is up for debate, but like um, there, there's an artistic integrity there that, you know, in this time too of, like peak Sundance. This was the year that Blair Witch came out, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is something a lot of people invoke. And like, like just this, I remember in like the Thompson and Boardwell textbook that for like my intro to film class was like, you know, every American now operates under the assumption that like, well, you know, if 
things ever went bad, I can always be an independent filmmaker, you know? (laughs) And it's like, it's like this, this thing that's like, I guess, yeah, you know, it's, it's because people have had success. It's something like, well, I, I could do it. And how many movies are there, you know, out there about exactly this fictional and documentary and like a living in oblivion, the, the Steve Buscemi joint, you know, it's like, um, there's there the independent filmmaker had been romanticized and that's something we see in the film as he watches the oscars and like billy yes. crystal is like you know the year of the independent filmmaker you know and you know he's talking about like tarantino and like miramax stuff you know but like uh the the kind of stuff that mark is is involved with is just like not even on the radar of of like serious you know moneyed uh film industry people yeah, I, I really enjoyed that moment where he's watching the Oscars with his mom. And and you get the sense, too, that there's that pang there where he, he realizes, you know, Billy Crystal is lauding these independent guys, these smaller filmmakers, these guys who, like, sit outside of the Hollywood mainstream. And he's really not talking about Mark, right? He's really not For talking sure. about, like, his ilk at all. Um, and, I, and I think that Mark, there's a moment there where you kind of know that he knows that, too, and realizes, like, this, this is even just, like, an, a, a level... Uh, above what he's operating within and kind of like his cohort are, are, are capable of, at least financially and in terms For of sure. their means. Um, but Mark throughout the movie too, you know, is is given a lot of texture uh, through conversations with the people who are closest to him. And uh, he's got a, a pretty big family. He's got a couple of brothers. He's got a mom who's still in his life and a, a dad who are, you know, both uh, separated and they all seem to be running out of patience with him throughout the movie. <laughs> well, uh, you, you get a sense that there's probably like a history of wasted potential, I guess, or like disappointment that, that Mark has been, you know, he's very charismatic and he could talk a big game, but for whatever reason, it seems like he just hasn't been able to to actually achieve the things that he's talking about. And, and his family is probably tired with Mm -hmm. it to some degree they're probably like all right just like go to go work at the factory i know it's the thing you don't want to do you know but like we've all been you know trying to support you to achieve your dreams for you know he's almost 30 uh in this film uh and he's been making films uh since he was a teenager and he's been on a paper route since he was a teenager he talks about Mm -hmm. uh and he's still delivering papers in this film so so you know you get the sense that everyone wants him to to be successful and and live a happy life but nobody seems to really think that filmmaking is going to be that path for him yeah i think at one point they very casually, or maybe he's the one who says so, that he owes uh, his his father specifically something like ten thousand yep. dollars over the yep. course of their their life, um, and that doesn't even get into the opening scene with the credits where he's just going through all his bills, right, and, yeah. and just like laying it all out. That you know, very funnily uh, ends with him getting a, a new credit card. Hand, <laughs> <laughs> you have any idea of its capabilities? Uh, do you have any reasonable semblance? Look, what, what we're doing right here, it's past 3 o'clock. It's, oh, my God, it's its 20 after 3. We've got to get these pages printed. We've got to get them straight to the copier. We've got madmen putting scarecrows up front. God knows why. They have no pragmatic purpose to the show, but I'd like to keep the troops motivated. 
Uh, idle hands are known to be the devil's workshop, so we want to keep things along, you know. I'm sitting here, you're, you're asking me questions, I'm trying to get this finished, I've got uh, people walking around, I, I wish I could give them destinies, but I'm, uh, I have to adhere to this keyboard. He, he asked me to come over and help him out, he said he needs some help, I'm always helping him with his, with his films and, and uh, we used to uh, do a lot of partying together, but I don't party anymore. <laughs> Dear girl, do you know what you possess in your hand? Do you have any idea of its capabilities? Do you have any inkling, any semblance of understanding whatsoever? I just made it up. I want to write that down. Do you have any? One of the people who stuck out to me in terms of his family members is uh, Alex Borchard, one of his yes, brothers. definitely. Um, who seems to be, I think, the most sick of Mark's shit <laughs> out of any of them, so to speak. Uh, at one point in time, he, I think he even says that he assumes that or had at some point assumed that Mark would grow up to be a serial killer or, yeah. or plot somebody's death or something like that. And maybe even maybe even murder him. Right. Um, he does. He does not have a lot of uh, faith in his brother in this movie. No. Yeah. You, I, I kind of get the sense that he's had a real kind of older brother little brother relationship dynamic with him maybe in the sense that he was maybe like tortured or bullied or beat up you know by mark over the years um he he doesn't really seem to have a kind word to say about him he says like yeah he's most suited for working in a factory and and in the commentary actually the the filmmakers ask him you know what do you think about what alex is saying and he declines to comment on it all, all, all he'll say about it is that at the time of shooting, Alex was living at home with the parents too. Uh, so he doesn't, re- it's, a, it's a bit of, you know, throwing stones in glass house sort of situation. Um, but he does talk about his other brother, Chris, uh, the guy we see in like the Hooters bowling shirt. Yes. Uh, um, <laughs> who, and he, he continually says like, Oh, Chris is a cool guy. You know, like um, uh, they, they seem to have a better relationship. Um, but I mean, the, the real kindred family member for Mark is uncle Bill, right? Like, yes, like they have this connection, this kind of like, you know, lone, uh, unacknowledged artist sort of thing that they could connect over and like, you know, whether or not, um, Mark is after his money, which he certainly is. And, you know, you can argue in certain scenes, he's really, uh, trying to just, sees him as the money guy. Uh, but in other scenes like, um, Thanksgiving, you know, he's the only family member there having dinner with uncle bill. You know, he's the only one there giving him a bath. He's the only one there, uh, taking care of him. And I mean, you know, you can argue whether or not it's fully constructive because they're like both plastered during that scene, (laughs) (laughs) you know, uh, there, there's the great moment of, of cinema cinnamon, just kind of lying on the floor but i mean there i think it's undeniable the uh love mark has for uncle bill and like the the reverence also like there's a scene in a trailer when he's he's reciting his poem or his song and mark's just kind of looking at him like bewildered like you know just kind of in awe of of what he's hearing um so like like i think that's 
I don't, I don't know. I mean, certainly on a practical level, it would have been hard to do any of this without uncle Bill because he was financing it. But I think on like a spiritual and just like emotional level too, like, like he's, he's the only one, even if he explicitly says he doesn't believe in Mark, his actions show different, you know, his willingness to spend time with him and just like be a family member to him, I think speaks different. And, and I think it's a, it's a mutually beneficial relationship. You know, they, they both, get the family uh camaraderie and the like just like friendship and and intellectual uh stimulation from each other that is just nowhere to be found elsewhere within like the borshark clan the sequence where mark is trying to get him to record the adr for the man pantheon uh, (laughs) scene yeah (laughs) 31 takes of him trying to say there's something to live for. Jesus told me so uh, is, is really, really wonderful to behold. There's also a, a kind of interesting irony in regards to their relationship in that Bill is the one who seems to have the most financial security out of anyone in the right. entire movie. You know, he, I think at one point says that he has something close to like a quarter million dollars, like yeah. put away. Supposed in to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know he also is he's kind of representative of a lot of the things that mark fears for his own life you know this kind mm-hmm. of small yeah. existence and this relative lack of ambition um but is also the person in the movie who seems the most secure you know the person who seems to have the most of the things that like materially uh mark is is seeking yeah but i mean it it's interesting because even with that financial security he's living in a trailer Yes. You know, and and, you know, I think it's a bit of a thing, too, where it's like watching this now also like a real lament for the ability to sort of live a modest existence without like really struggling, you know, that that and that there's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, respectability and like not nothing to denigrate about being able to do that, just like living modestly and like being able to take care of yourself and even being able to take care of your family in the way uncle Bill does for Mark, you know? Um, but like, like, uh, the, Chris and Sarah, the filmmakers, like they, they were embedded in Milwaukee for four years. Um, they shot for two and they edited for two and they didn't develop any of their footage until it was all shot pretty much, or like very close to the end of it. They were just kind of going on faith. They didn't really know necessarily what they had. They just knew that they, they felt the material was going to be really good. But uh, similarly, you know, thinking about the ability, uh, to, do that at that time, you know, in, in Milwaukee, which is, you know, obviously like a lower cost of living than, than someplace like New York or LA or even Chicago. Um, like, and, and to do it just kind of uh, on the fly and like find a little bit of funding here or there, you know, uh, is just like such a privilege. I feel like that is just impossible to achieve nowadays. Let's talk about another character in in the film, um, the number two, really the the Robin kind of Please, to, to yes. Mark's Batman, <laughs> uh, Mike Shank, who uh, who did just pass away, uh, I think last yes, month. R.I.P. Um, yeah, Mike is a, a really interesting character, and I mean he's kind of one of the bleeding hearts of the film. He's so earnest. He's so sort of like perpetually kind of in a state of burnout. He's he's a, a casualty of of a long stretch of really awful substance abuse and, and probably yeah. addiction too. 
Um, and when we see him in the film, he's uh, he's sober. He sought recovery and mm-hmm. uh, has has stopped drinking as of a year and a half ago. He's still struggling with a uh, sort of compulsive gambling habit that's bordering right. on addiction itself. Um, but he is, you know, interestingly, this character who kind of has sort of a, an ignorance to him sweetly, but also is one of the few in Mark's orbit who is actively trying to better themselves as well. Mm-hmm. True. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a guy who just, he has like zero pretense, you know, you could take everything he's, he says and does like a hundred percent at face value. And, um, what he says and does is like generally like very sweet and in the way he's just like, you know, the Robin, he's just there for Mark. And one of the deleted scenes there, they have, um, he's just says like, Mark's my best friend. Uh, I don't, and they're like, why is that? And he's like, I don't really know. He's just my best friend. You know, <laughs> there's, there's like this, like just loyalty there. That's like, so uh, great and warm. And like the, I think, something that's kind of under uh, examined in talking about this film is its depiction of just like male friendship. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and there's the amazing scene, uh, at Mark's house where like Mike comes over and Mark is talking about like how depressed he was and how, you know, everything's hard for him. And then Mike came over and Mike put a smile on his face and then just pan over to Mike and he's just got this like beaming grin, you know, (laughs) and, and, you know, he, he certainly lends a lot to the film in terms of like humor and pathos, the scene with like, does anybody have brown gloves? That's just like one of my favorite lines in any movie ever. But like the, (laughs) the, you got to also talk about what he lends to the film in terms of the soundtrack, like, like the character of the film is so um, enhanced and enriched by Mike's guitar score. And like, you know, when I think of Mr. Bojangles, this is like the definitive recording for me is mm-hmm. just Mike plucking away. Uh, they show him blindfolded playing some uh, Bach earlier. Yep. And in the, in the commentary, they reveal he was blindfolded with his blue belt from taekwondo (laughs) 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 but like yeah yeah i mean he he is the perfect foil i think for mark in the way that mark is just so like loquacious and energized and charismatic and mike is is uh so like quiet and understated but like no less compelling and they're they're like in tandem are just so amazing to watch i don't know like it's it's just they, they're very compelling cinematic figures there's an interesting kind of relationship that mike's story i think has to coven itself as well yeah yeah in that you know the plot of coven is uh that there's this character played by mark in in the movie uh who, named mike named mike <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who uh is introduced to a sort of AA type group, a self-help group after uh, a period of drinking and uh, finds out that they're really a cult, some sort of like satanic, evil, kind of nefarious uh, organization. And I get the sense that a lot of the movie in terms of its narrative and plotting is Mark reckoning with the sort of loss and betrayal he feels about losing Mike as a drinking buddy, despite the fact that he's still in his orbit you know, a lot of the conversations we hear about how they engage and how they became friends is that uh, drinking was was For their sure. 
sort of uh, play place and and that Mike, you know, first met Mark and first took to Mark because he was the only other person who would drink at his level and kind yeah. of enable him in his substance abuse. Uh, and throughout the film, we see Mark's drinking get progressively worse as well to the mm-hmm. point where it starts becoming debilitating. It leads to a lot of different outbursts and, and conflicts throughout the film. Um, but I, I just found that part really, really interesting, you know, that there's there's earlier in the film, I think it might be Alex who kind of accuses Mark of not making personal movies or making movies that are, you know, kind right. of like low. And uh, when when you see just a little bit of this relationship between him and Mike, it becomes so obvious that this movie Coven has a lot to do with this friendship or with with this feeling that he has around rejecting the help and and uh you know being very frustrated with the fact that that mike is seeking it yeah that that's so sharp um and not not something i had really considered but i think it's very fruitful idea um because like yeah there there's so much in mark's rhetoric about like not giving in to groupthink, like not being just like one of the sheep, one of the followers, you know. And I think, as yeah, as depicted in COVID, like Alcohol Anonymous is exactly that for Mark. And you know, I think there's this thing like Mark does kind of support Mike at certain parts, but he also, I think, if Mike was if he if he ever peer pre- was pressuring Mike like he does to t- buy him a pitcher of beer at Jim Mitchell's and Mike was like, yeah, okay, he would do it. He would do it in a heartbeat and not, mm-hmm. not think it, about it. He'd be like, sick, Mike wants to get a drink with me again, you know, like, um, but you know, at the end of, of the premiere, the Coven premiere, he's like, you know, are you happy, Mike? He's like, great. Don't drink. You know, it's like <laughs> this, this, this kind of push and pull. Um, but I think again, that just goes back to their friendship, you know, that it can, uh, survive Mike's sobriety, you know, mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, if Ken Keeney were maybe to stop drinking, maybe it, it wouldn't in the same way, uh, yeah. because that really does seem to be the like primary basis of that relationship. But I mean, you know, having said that, both of those guys are like sleeping over at University of Wisconsin, like on the edit floor, you know, just like working tirelessly for no money for their friend, you know, and that's just like very special to see. But like, the yeah my, my or mark said that that seeing him drunk in some of these scenes was like the hardest part of watching the film for him and it, it seemed to be pretty revelatory and eye-opening for him and in the commentary they talked about after that scene at the super bowl where he's probably the most wasted we see him mm-hmm. uh he he just went cold turkey uh until the coven premiere uh, to finish up the film. And then the way he was talking in the commentary, it made it seem like he had tampered down his drinking significantly, but like there's the, the interview with like the local paper or radio station or whatever. And he's kind of talking about the film and like really mythologizing drinking as like being the core of it, you know, yes, like, like, you know, it, there wasn't, you know, bills or blah 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 there was just drinking you know and he's talking about like the frontier and the american west and you know thinking about the title of the film northwestern uh which is because they're in the northwest corner of milwaukee but i've also always thought of it as like a western that takes place in the north you know mm-hmm. um so like he, he there's um you know 
relative to certainly what I'm used to with like Weissman, for instance, the, the, the academic writing on this film is, is, um, well, shall we say scant at best? (laughs) (laughs) Um, but there, it was featured in this one, uh, book by Adam Ochenicki called the American Midwest in film and literature. And he's talking about American movie in the afterward, along with another, uh, doc actually a frontline episode uh, called two american families also mm-hmm. about just kind of economic hardships in milwaukee um and he says uh it's as though financial crisis reactivates or perhaps accentuates a nostalgic longing to return to a lost or imagined past state so here we have mark in you know the mid to late 90s struggling to support his kids struggling to get his life together you know struggling to have like a reliable income um and of course he's gonna think like man wouldn't it be great to just like fucking be on the frontier getting wasted all the time you know doing whatever they did out there they made it work everyone was living in kind of poverty together and it didn't matter so much you know there wasn't this like cultural class competition uh or you know they're probably none of that's true but like in his conception of that era and that that uh place you know like he it's the same it's like a a less um like just vitriolic and and harmful side of like make america great again right Mm -hmm. to a certain degree like like the and it's a time he never knew and it's it's um a, a success he's never known too. I mean, he probably grew up more comfortably as a kid, like with his parents, uh, than he is now at that same age. Um, but like the, the, he can only conceive of it being better because he doesn't know it to not be true, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really glad that you made that connection to, you know, kind of the MAGA ideology. It was one of the things that, that I was thinking of, and I wasn't sure if maybe I was extrapolating too far, but, you know, this idea of, of this material insecurity for, you know, these young working class men in the late 90s, especially in the Rust Belt and in these kind of areas where, you know, industry has sort of died and collapsed under under neoliberalism, and just seeing it as as really the root of that kind of reactionary populism that uh, mm-hmm. that really you know started to take shape there and and has led to a lot of the ramifications we're experiencing here in the 21st century for sure yeah and that that other that frontline doc to american families is like much more of a didactic kind of like two decade long examination of like kind of what i was talking about earlier just like deunionization uh, you know nafta and outsourcing and just like the the material impacts of these policies on like working people over the course of the 90s you know um and but this does the exact same thing in such a more like artful and and holistic way you know it it, it's more relatable because it's wrapped up in in passion and in filmmaking you know i think like like there's this is about Mark and his dream, but it's also, you know, as a lot of people know, like, like about the American dream writ large, you know, and the state of it and it's like, uh, accuracy or achievability or like it's, um, utility for like the powers that be to be like, you know, individual work is the key to 
uh, your happiness in life. And if you're not succeeding, uh, it's for no other reason than your own lack of like, uh, you know, motivation or effort. Right. And, and people really internalize that and they really buy into that line and really fucks them up and it makes them turn to the bottle, you know, man, I go out here, just go out there hour, two hours, drive around these houses, man. And it's like, okay, now I know what I'm here for again. Fine. And you got that squared away, but to be serious, the American dream stays with me each and every day. And I'm glad we're doing this today because I was really getting down and out. And thank God they extended my phone bill till Friday and lowered it too. But anyway, so today, man, uh, I'm just going to go right back to work, man, so we can get... It. Actually, my house ain't going to look like this, man. It's going to be flatter, a lot flatter, less obnoxious than this. And then I realized one thing in a kind of a Christian coded ethical arena. Why should you be successful while others are not? Well, you know what? I got over that guilt. Cause you know what? Hey, I don't know that answer. I don't know why. It's, you know, it feels like in a Christian, what Jesus would be saying, it's, it's totally unchristian, man, to try to get ahead because everyone's on an equal level playing field, an equal par. But you know what? I'm not a Christian. I'm half and half, man. Half's uh, with the Satanist idea and half the Christian idea. Satanist, which is the pursuit of human endeavors, and Christianity, which is the pursuit of um, higher levels, you know? Did you notice uh, that there was this kind of fascination with graveyards in a couple of key scenes? Like, obviously, <laughs> obviously Mark uh, works in the graveyard as yeah. like kind of like a, a part-time job for a moment, which he is very quick to dismiss and, and says, you know, like, I, I will not be here very long at all. Right. The, the manager told me, I hope this is the start of a, a long and, and fruitful relationship. I'm going to be out of here in a couple of weeks. Um, but he also speaks very kind of reverently about the space and what it meant to him as like a young man, you know, as like a filmmaker mm -hmm. and, and especially as a drinker as well, you know, somewhere where yeah. he could go that was right. free of any sort of like adults and accountability. Uh, but there's also kind of like a weird, uh, almost sort of like morbid articulation of this kind of like American dream ideal within it. You know, at some point he's there and, and when he's first in the cemetery says something along the lines of, you know, like all these people are here and, and they're not bitching and moaning or you can't hear their complaints, <laughs> but they're here. They're here as decent human beings. Finally, everybody is equal. Yeah. And I don't know what you make of that. There's just like this interesting kind of like a leveling effect that I think Mark sees in death and in, in the graveyard mm. itself that I, I found kind of fascinating that this seems to be the only place within his purview where there is this kind of equanimity that he's like seeking or believes in about this, you know, the, the kind of sociopolitical hierarchy of, of the space around him. Yeah, no, that that's really interesting and good question. Like, you know, I mean, while I think it's obviously something that has always held significance for him because, you know, we see like the, the footage of like the more the scarier three and they're shooting in as the cemetery probably the same one valhalla mm -hmm. cemetery and like you don't apply for a job at the cemetery unless you're like kind of interested <laughs> in that whole vibe right like yeah like so i think there's a thing there going back to the paper route like where he does have this independence and and uh where he's not working with other people he's out there on his own uh, in solitude with time to think yet he's 
never alone in the sense that he's surrounded by all these dead people right and Mm -hmm. uh they're just all around all these stories and lives and bodies are are around him at all times and it's got to be this kind of like surreal like pseudo comforting thing for him i think of 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 being amongst being contextualizing himself within his regional history in this way is like these are the lives of you know our area's ancestors i guess and like i'm a part of this lineage and i'm not i i'm a part of something i'm not sep i'm i'm separate i'm a maverick i'm in solitude but like so too were maybe many of these other people and here i am among them now you know and this is where i will be one day uh so i think he has like a real um just awareness and cognizance of like the ephemerality of life and and success and you know the ups and downs of life Mm -hmm. uh so it's, it's 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 pretty heavy man it's like a it's like constant like perspective <laughs> uh, reassessment uh being thrust on you like all day and like working a literal graveyard shift yeah he starts in that place you know with that kind of like oh these people are here and there's this you know kind of finality to this place there's this reverence for it and then there's one more scene at the end too which i think is uh kind of pitch perfect when he's working in the graveyard and driving around making sure he hasn't locked anybody in as he closes yeah, up yeah. for the day and he drives past uh, one of kind of like the structures, one of the buildings, and he says, they've got people stacked six high in there. There's one price for a plot of <laughs> land, and there's another price to stack you six high. It's a vertical yeah. business. Totally. And there's this like weird kind of like acknowledgement uh, in this moment that, you know, that, that here too, there is still this hierarchy that he's trying to, sure. trying to run yeah. away from, you know, or, or that he thinks is, you know, finally... Uh, that you're finally freed from in death, but here you are, you know, like, oh, it depends on how much you're able to pay and how much you have. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great point. And it's like, yeah, even in this place where we're supposedly all equal, you know, something I always noted as a kid, like driving past the cemetery, you know, the big, like above ground mausoleums, you know, that Mm -hmm. the the rich people would have and, you know, all the, in the grass uh, headstones, you know, like, like it, it's just something you can't escape from anywhere in in uh, America, I guess, right? Like it's just like everywhere you look, there is this hierarchy. And I mean, one of the more on the nose, like poetic sequences of the film is when he's going through like the rich neighborhood, you know, yes. driving past all these like ugly McMansions and stuff, you know, and like, <laughs> you know, on his paper route and like, you know, this is what I'm going for. And even he even notes like, I'm not going to have anything as like ostentation as this, but like, you know, there's, again the utility the like uh social utility of the american dream to keep people uh in line and and um complacent in their in situations where they really shouldn't be complacent because of just the lack of um you know material support and and resources that that come from these positions but like um yeah so so that's a little on the nose, but I think it's no less poetic in terms of, you know, metaphorically expressing the themes of the film. Another really brilliant detail throughout the film is that it's peppered with a couple of uh, shots. We've already mentioned kind of the culmination of these, but uh, of, of the Green Bay Packers 
on their totally. on their yes. season Thank run uh, to, sure. to win the Super Bowl. And we we see at the very end, you know, the, the kind of Super Bowl party that he holds with his mother and with Mike and and folks and and is getting just uh, you know just blackout drunk and very aggressive. But I, I I did think it was just a really brilliant flourish that along the lines of you know this this man struggling to make his ends meet and to succeed at his dream, he's watching his hometown team achieve theirs and watching yeah. them get to the big game and and uh, and take it all home. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's very like much like the the reason sports exist, right? Like that we mm-hmm. can all like sus- subsume ourselves in this, um, like like just by proxy achievement. Uh, they they are won and they do their winning near where I live, so I won too. You know, right? Yep. We did and it. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's this. Um, so like like. Uh, for me that that's another connection to hoop dreams is he he operates in much the same way michael jordan is operating uh when they watch him on tv and hoop mm-hmm. dreams as like you know that this is the level of success i'm i'm uh that is being propagated to me by the media you know and thus that this is the the level of success uh i am being conditioned to think I'm able to achieve if only I put in the work to do so. Right. Just this mm-hmm. like um, ever present fallacy of, of life in America. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, really, I mean, that, that goes with the Oscar scene too, kind of. Um, but the, the contrast I think is, is really marked and um, appreciated. Like just it's it's never he wins the super bowl and mark finishes his movie you know and yeah on on these parallel narratives um are are both reaching like their their zenith or of success um so yeah one 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 while i'm on the subject too of hoop dreams again something i i uh, thought the film really does that maybe crib directly from hoop dreams is the way it reveals Mark has kids. Yes. <laughs> Just kind of like <laughs> drops that in the middle of the film where it's they're like, it's all like almost an hour up. into yeah. the movie. Yeah. yeah. And then suddenly they're just sitting there and you kind of get the thing like, Whoa, this dude has like four kids, you know? Um, but it then just like, lends his whole situation this whole new relevance and importance and context you know and like what one of the just really touching things of the film is like seeing him pass his love of film down to his children and actually uh, as oldest in the film dawn Borchart, she's got like a film podcast now um or like seeing his son you know do the camera operating you know it's yeah. just like like whether or not he's able to pay his child support, you know, not doesn't seem to be the best situation, but it's very clear. He's got like love for his kids and he's like trying to be a good father, even if along the way he's maybe spending, you know, more time than he should on filmmaking or he's drinking more than he should. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, there's, there's no doubt that like, I think he, he wants what he wants uh, to be o- only so much as that he wants it for the success of his family. Yeah, it's kind of a, a a tough moment there to swallow. They you know bring it up and introduce the fact that he's you know got this dream, but simultaneously has this family commitment. He's neglecting his child support <laughs> as well right, within the yeah. movie. 
Um, but yeah, there there is like a love there that he is imbuing of, of cinema with these kids. I, I love the moment where his son is, you know, saying like, oh, the last movie daddy took us to was <laughs> Apocalypse Now. The totally. man kept saying the horror, the yeah. horror. <laughs> yeah, in the, in the commentary, he, he talked about that. He was just like, yeah, you got to start him off right with the best stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah his his relationship in here is is uh complicated i guess you know there maybe there's some omission here going on in terms of like what what we're seeing and and not but he seems to be you know in a uh kind of tumultuous relationship with this woman joan i think is her name who also kind of works on the production of, of the yeah. film um but also has his uh the mother of his children who he's yeah sort of sort uh, of connected to in some some way still Alyssa is the, is the mother and we only see her very briefly um in a in a driveway arguing with Mark um while Joan his current girlfriend at the time um you know is sort of talking about oh when there's kids there's you know all these complications and connections so like she's really just there as an illustrative figure but you get the sense that that's probably true to the reality of the situation that if like they're they did have more of a relationship and connection. We would probably see more of that just because Mm -hmm. again, they were just there always filming for, you know, a year uh, or more. Um, So like, you know, they, they do seem pretty thoroughly like divorced and, and separated. Within weeks, the film will be cut, finished, mixed, throw it an optical track on the release print, get it onto three quarter inch, bump it down to half inch for multiple sales. What do you think about that? Multiple sales to who? To the buying audience. We're selling 3,000 units. Who's the, who's the buying audience? Bill, man, we're selling 3,000 units at $14.95 each, which is a return of 45 grand. Pay for the damn film. Get the three grand back. Pay everyone back. Take the profits. That'll be the day. That'll be the That'll day. That'll be. And you know what? I'm going to bring over a bottle of wine, man. You have a preference? That'll be the day. Red or white wine? Uh, Red or white? Hmm. yeah now you're thinking chris smith the the filmmaker here has has carved out kind of a niche in the last like decade or so with a particular kind of of documentary film kind of a Uh, bummer yeah he's he's done the uh the jim carrey documentary for netflix when that chronicles him um during uh the shooting of man on the moon uh, he did one of two Fire Festival documentaries that was released right. in 2018. Um, was also producer on Tiger King as well. Yeah. Um, so you yeah, kind of get like a sense of what he's Netflix doing. Netflix house style guy now, which is yeah, bummer. Yeah. Do you do you see any of the remnants, or, or rather, any of the early inklings of of that in American movie? Is there anything there that hints that that might be his direction? Do you think? You know, it's really funny because in speaking at the time both him and sarah talk about they they reject the label of documentarian and they both say you know i think the next thing we work on will be like a fictional film you know and they they seem to see this as an aberration for them and in fact um chris's first film before this was a narrative indie feature called american job um which i'd been looking for for the longest time and actually turned up on youtube within the past year um, so I definitely recommend checking that out, but cause there are a lot of, uh, fruitful connections with American movie, um, being that it, it follows this, you know, working class guy who can't really hold down any of these menial jobs. He's, uh, hopping to one to the other, 
um, and and uh, in the factory or as a janitor, as we see Mark do in the cemetery. Um, but he doesn't have like the the passion or the the interest that Mark has. You know, it, he Chris really seemed to, and Mark found this character that was like so ready made for his interests and sensibilities, um, but enhanced like. Uh, the figure in that film Randy is his name Randy the American worker Um, but he so like I could see that at that time you know thinking like all right you know I did this doc everyone loves it it's giving me attention I'm making money off of it so now I could kind of go do what I want but you know in the industry it it so seldom works that way (laughs) like you know okay you made this great successful documentary go make another you know do Mm -hmm. do this thing we want you to do more um and i think you know the netflix stuff yeah just it just bums me out how how he's sort of been put a place as a cog in that whole machine um and and the type of docs that they're putting out um, which I, yeah, to your question, I, I don't really see the connection there. There's a lot more like construction and artifice and, um, just they, they don't, they, they lack the authenticity, not only of this film, but of this era of nonfiction filmmaking. I think they're just so like prepackaged and manufactured. I think that there is this, you know, kind of tendency, even with Smith's current films to sort of embrace and, and look at the value of something like American movie as being the spectacle of it rather than mm-hmm. what I think is the the most sort of fascinating and revealing thing, which is its examination of institutions. Yeah. Um, and, and really, you know, those kind of material realities that it's getting at while also being about something else. I, I think that, you know, he uh, has in a lot of ways taken the idea that uh, all you need is a, a particularly kind of out of this world subject or, or kind yeah. of, profile of something and that in itself will reveal and and give you the nature of the entertainment value without really looking at the things responsible for it or the things that they're reckoning with in real time um and it feels to me a little bit more exploitative in that regard Mm -hmm. the things that that he's doing now something like uh you know like a tiger king and it's sort of like fascination with like a character like joe exotic so i'm i'm i am fascinated to hear that there are so many criticisms of american movie as being some sort of like exploitation of its subjects yeah that that's really on point and i mean even thinking about the films he did uh and the the next few ones he did after american movie um he was still engaged with these ideas these ideas of like you know people's just material lives um collapse uh, which is kind of, you know, about like the global economic collapse <laughs> um, and and the yes men, you know, those mm-hmm. those two guys who go around doing kooky uh, corporate uh, shenanigans. Yes. yes. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, um, so like like, yeah, just somewhere along the way, um, interest change or resources changed or the industry change, whatever it was. Um, but but it was it was something and yeah this this exploitation thing i mean it's something um you know at i think has come more to the fore in recent years as people start to write about and consider just like documentary ethics in a more 
mainstream kind of way as documentaries and unscripted programming, you know, becomes more uh, prominent. Um, but at, at the time, writing contemporaneously, the only one who seemed to bring this up was, was again, Amy Taubin in the Village Voice, mm-hmm. uh, who I, she talks about um, the film presenting disconcerting power relationships because of the modest success of American Job. Uh, Chris's first indie, which was a film Mark had seen, and uh, as long as well as Chris's earlier short films, and uh, gave him the faith in Chris to allow him to document his life. Um, but you know, if uh, he, she also says this, this is how she closes. Mind-boggling to me, with a passive aggressiveness worthy of Warhol, he has used the camera to exacerbate the relationship of unequal power. Uh, and of, of Mark, she says, well, I don't begrudge him his year of fame. What he doesn't seem to understand about his exploitation creeps me out. And it's just like, you know, how, how does, she, how is she thinking that she knows better than Mark, whether or not he's being exploited? You know, mm-hmm. that seems to be like a very like condescending attitude, uh, to position to take like, um, and, and especially, again, as these issues have come more to the fore, you know, to single out this film, I think, uh, when if you're really going to, you know, talk about it, like all documentaries have this issue of exploitation and power imbalance, right? Yes. It's just It's just inherent to the form because somebody is behind the camera, somebody is shaping this uh, actuality material, however they want to do it. Um, so it's, it's really a matter of sensibilities and like competence and, um, just like ethics, you know? So, and I think this film displays like proficiency in all of those areas. You know, I, most of the other people reviewing the film at the time note the empathy of the film, uh, especially supported by like its construction and its formal elements. You know, the, the filmmaking does a lot of lifting to create uh, a empathy and, and pathos for these figures that, you know, a lesser filmmaker could have very easily done the point and laugh kind of thing. And in the commentary and in interviews, Mark says he, he feels the film is accurate. He doesn't feel like there's anything in there that is untrue or manipulated. You know, all that is him on screen. Um, but the, the uh, someone else at the time too, I want to talk about, um, is on the success of this film, you know, a lot of opportunities came for Mark and Mike, mm-hmm. one of which Mike, uh, being cast in Todd Salon's film, uh, storytelling. Yes. Uh, he was cast as Paul Giamatti's like documentary camera operator. <laughs> yes. And they, the climax of that film is, is the screening of the documentary they've been shooting, uh, one of the, of this family in New Jersey and the, the son in the family is named Scooby and the film is called American Scooby. Um, so, uh, the, and there's this, this, he kind of shows the screening and shows the audience, uh, laughing in a way that is like, um, very, derogatory i guess or like laughing inappropriately taking purient pleasure in like working class situations you know um and he said about that 
the thing that interested and unsettled me about American movie is that it walked a very fine line. People were laughing uproariously and you have to question what that laughter is about. And I think, you know, do you, I, I think can, can you, I think interrogating that is um, a slippery slope that mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, I think you, you can't get into people's heads and know why they're laughing at a certain thing. You know, I, when I laugh at this film and I laugh frequently and like deeply um, it's, it's in recognition. It's in like recognition of the struggles of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. It's in recognition of the struggles of being like a 20 something in America you know, it's it's in recognition of uh, family dynamics and relationships. You know, it's it's all in recognition. It's all in empathy. It's all like very grounded to me in those ways. That is not, um, you know, there are documentaries out there that I think do have some contempt for the people they document. You know, mm-hmm. I would you could say like Billy Mitchell in The King of Kong. Um, you could say like like Errol Morris doing the Fog of War and the the um, Rumsfeld film, yeah. you know, like the known unknown. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like like you know there there are films that do that, and I think those films you know are right to do it in the ways that they do it. But I don't I don't think this is one of those films. No, completely. I I would disagree that this is one that's intending for you to laugh at its subjects in any way other than the way that they laugh with one another and laugh sure. at one another in a yeah. lot of ways. Um, that Robert Greenpeace uh, that we keep uh, bringing up, uh, very talented documentary filmmaker for those listeners who are not keyed into it, um, but uh, has has some great stuff out there um, and then wrote an excellent piece on this for the 20th anniversary. Uh, also mentions that there's some criticisms or, or some accusations of like a secret collaboration between uh, mm-hmm. Mark and Chris, that there's a lot of this movie that is maybe manipulated or, or semi-scripted or, or planned out in the way that it's it's uh, showcasing Mark and, and his particular musings and, and way of thinking. Do you yeah. think that there's any water to that whatsoever? Do you think that that is something mm-hmm. that is more of just sort of like that, that you know, kind of uh, permeable line between subject and director? Or, or do you think that there is something there? You know, it's, it's an interesting question. You know, I think it comes out of the filmmakers respect for their subject, you know, a a desire to not be exploitative and use the platform of the film to lift up Mark and his work, you know? So, so it's collaborative in that way, as he notes, like in the end credits, it, it directs you to buy a copy of Coven, Right. You know, um, and I know like like at my video store I talked about earlier, you know, they had one and a bunch of video stores in the Midwest had it. Uh, I think I got my copy back here. Uh, he's been selling VHSs, <laughs> signed VHSs uh, for a while now. Um, but like so there's there's that. But, you know, one interesting part in the commentary was um, the the Uncle Bill ADR scene. You know, there's the there's a take where Mark was like, bill that was perfect i think i recorded it too high and chris was like watching that he's like you know i'm just realizing i could have given you my audio recording from that and you could have used it you know (laughs) and they're they could but like they, they didn't because it just seemed not even in the cards like you know it would pervert uh, the proceedings, I guess, you know, Mm -hmm. and like, like, I feel like if it was a, uh, there's some 
behind the scenes stuff going on, like there would be more sharing of resources like that. I mean, it's very clear too, like, like Chris and Sarah are often like right next to Mark's camera shooting the same scenes, you know? And, um, like they have probably resources and arguably a technical proficiency that uh, exceeds Mark's resources and abilities. Yet there's a dignity to the way Mark does it. You know, there's, there's Mm -hmm. like something aspirational about his uh, like fierce, like maverick independence and like DIY productions. And I mean, again, you know, going to black back to Blair, Witch, you know, this is, post Kevin Smith, this is post Tarantino, post Rodriguez, you know, like, like, I think there, there's, um, just something about that whole idea of like those kinds of self-made independent filmmakers. And it's like Mark wouldn't dream of having them, you know, come step in, uh, you know, and, and be collaborators in his film in that way. And I think, you know, so if we're talking about collaboration, Again, you know, Mark was like, I'm performing, I'm playing it up. Um, but like, like they were filming him. They said uh, in the first year, roughly, they were filming like one or once or twice a week. But after the uh, cupboard scene, uh, which is, you know, like a pantheon scene in all of film, I think uh, <laughs> they picked it up and they started filming like almost all day, every day. Mm-hmm. So, I mean you think about the level, the amount of footage you accumulate. And they said they, they shot about 70 hours of film and 105 hours of audio. Um, it's impossible to, to be on all through that, you know, it's impossible to always be like in real time curating your own image. Uh, Mm -hmm. you have to just be and let your guard down or you will exhaust yourself, especially if you're involved in your own creative endeavor. And especially if you're also involved in just like nine to five labor to keep yourself going, you know? So this, I think, um, you know, it goes back to the authenticity question. And and I, I just feel that his realness like really shines through, and in the commentary too, he, he was, you know, a scene of him going off at a production meeting or something. He would just be like, kind of in bewilderment. He's like, man, like I was really talking some stuff back then. Or like, <laughs> what, what was I even saying? You know, like, like, and I think he just, he, he said the production meetings are like, nothing happened here. It was more of a performance for me, you know, it was more of a training, like mm-hmm. to, to talk about his work uh, in, in a way that, that, resonated with other people yeah i would agree with that you know you get the sense too that mark would have refused any help he would have gotten from yeah from uh price and, and smith on this one uh especially given you know just the the number of times we see him struggling with you know trying to trying to uh you know star in the film and be in front of the camera and also direct behind those moments where he's you know doing a close-up in the kitchen and having his mother operate the camera and (laughs) and neither of them can articulate to the other person what's going on in the frame what it looks like you know (laughs) like what what needs to be done um and and so you know you see those struggles and you assume like oh well you've got a camera operator and a sound person right there you know like you would assume that if, if there was any of that kind of, you know, collaboration on, on the film on Coven, you know, outside yeah. of American movie. Uh, 
that it would have happened in those moments, you know, just a, just a request for like, Hey, can you get behind the camera and help me out with this? And there's two, like, like one of the earlier scenes, like they're filming Mark at a, at his uh, typewriter in the, in the trailer. And like, you know, he's entertaining them, but he's also like, you know, all right, I'm talking to you. I need to write this script. I wish I could give everyone destinies, but yeah. you know, like, <laughs> like he, he has his eye on the ball too. Like, like the, the documentary is fine and good, but like, that's something that's happening around him and he's focused on COVID. Um, yeah. I mean, it, and it also brings up to, you know, again, that, as I mentioned, that kind of permeable boundary between the subject and the director that that we talk about right. in documentary a lot you know we we've already brought up hoop dreams a couple of times but you know the revelation that steve james and crew uh like paid to keep the lights on at, mm-hmm. at one of the one of the players houses i can't it may have been arthur i, I don't remember yeah, which but but uh you know just these these little things that we do see sometimes where you know the the creator also you know interferes with the subject in some ways to get what they need and and to continue this production um, and, and I don't know that I have any sort of like moral kind of frustration with that thing. I don't think that it means that there isn't authenticity here. And I don't think that there's not truth being revealed in this film still. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think, you know, there's doc ethics and there's like, just like ethics, ethics, like people ethics, you know? And I think if yeah. you spend as much time as these filmmakers are spending with the people they're filming, like you would have to be like inhuman to not want to support in these kinds of ways, you know, and even with hoop dreams, they split the profits with the families after it became a big success, you know, Mm -hmm. they, they split it three ways. Um, And, and in this film too, Mark talks about before it came out, he had sold a hundred copies of Coven. And after it came out at the time of the interview, it was like 2000. Um, So like there, you know, the i think filmmakers probably do feel some responsibility you know especially after the fact after because the it's very easy to just go and do it go on your own take all the credit take all the money and not look back and move on to the next projects you people could do that but like why why would you you know these these uh this family and all the people around them like gave so much time uh to you over the years and it's just like i i can imagine feeling that obligation or or that desire to to help better their situations especially if your own situation is is being bettered as a result of the project you know it, it would just it would be unfathomable to me to like make a documentary have it be successful uh financially uh, uh you know and the documentary was made like would have been impossible to make without the subjects and then not share some of that with the subjects afterwards. Cause it's after the film's already made, you know, the it's, it's already out there. It's not going to affect the integrity of the project at all. It's just going to, you know, materially support the people who helped you to create that success. And I think that's just like something that, that is incumbent upon a successful filmmaker. If, if they have the means to do it. We've mentioned already that, Mark doesn't uh, doesn't really care to talk about this film very much. Um, lots of yeah. retrospectives of this this uh, movie around the 20th anniversary a few years back. Uh, he politely 
declined interviews and, and doesn't really seem interested in any way in, in talking about or relitigating his participation in it um, and, and seems equally cold when the subject of uh, Mike Shank and some of the other yeah. people involved come up. Uh, I, I'm curious if you have any insights into Mark's mindset around this and, and what may have like curdled for him and, and why he doesn't talk about it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my, my friend, Brian, who I mentioned earlier, he was at that um, New York screening where Robert talks about uh, him giving kind of like a bristly response. I remember him texting me about that and us both kind of feeling sad that, that he seemed to have lost touch with Mike, who, you know, they both said were best friends at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think Robert really puts it well is that like, you know, Mark's dream wasn't to be, a subject of a canonical documentary his dream was to be a successful filmmaker and that's sure. something that still eludes him and it's something that chris smith has certainly achieved you know possibly on the back of mark and maybe there's some resentment there i i can understand that certainly mm-hmm. uh, but robert really puts it well that like he um has been like frozen in time by this film is like, this is how people know him. This is what people want to talk to him about and ask him about. And he remains prolific creatively. Like he has a cinema fireside, like um, discussion show. He Mm -hmm. came out with a short documentary about UFOs a a few years back. um, uh, The Dundee project. Um, uh, But he kind of, plays both sides a little bit i feel too because he has he's still selling these coven vhs's which you know are people only know about from american movie yeah. he has a coven wine too i think he did <laughs> um and he shows up in things like um the joe para show you know yeah um uh where you know it's purely like a cameo like that's mark from american movie oh my god you know like like so there are these ways that the film does continue to benefit him, but any filmmaker doesn't want to talk about shit they did 20 years ago. Right. Or any artist, you know, they want to talk about what they're working on now. They want to, they want um, their lives to move on. And, and as Mark says in the commentary, this film documents some of the darkest times of his life, you know, mm. times of struggle, times of interpersonal uh, hardship, uh, uh, relationships that are falling apart, um, uh, just financial hardship and and creative hardship and alcoholism, which he seems to have largely moved past from. Um, so, like, why the fuck would you want to just, like, always talk about those times in your life, you know? Yeah. Uh, Arlen, you posted on Twitter.com, uh, <laughs> so, soon to be no more, soon to be, uh, oh, God, yeah, who sure. knows? Uh, but yes. you were posting that you you were uh, venturing into a, a rather strange uh, film that looks like it stars <laughs> yeah. uh, American movie stars Mark Borchardt so and, and Mike Shank called uh, Britney Baby one more time. Is that is that the name? That's, Do I have it right? That's the name of it. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the premise <laughs> of this film? Yeah, I mean, this was a a movie I just learned about when I was still living in Chicago by virtue of of shopping at Reckless Records and just seeing the DVD on the shelves and my eyes falling out of my head because I'm like, what is this? Um, The cover uh, I have here is just, yeah, it's it's Mark and Mike looking up at uh, the classic, like, uh, red 
one piece pants suit uh of Brittany. Um and it's just like, <laughs> wait, what? Um, but I, I just watched it before we got on or revisited it. Um and and yeah, so so Mark is basically playing himself an idealized version of himself where he is a Menominee Falls independent horror filmmaker coming off the success of his first feature having screened at the Venice Film Festival. <laughs> and his name is Dude, uh, Dude Schmitz. <laughs> and and Mike, Mike plays his brother, Mike Schmitz. And uh, they are assigned by the local news station to interview Britney Spears when she's in town in Milwaukee performing. And then at the same time, uh, this drag queen uh richard i think is the, or robert sorry robert stevens wins a britney lookalike contest and she or he uh, is a drag queen he identifies as a gay man in the film um so he goes to meet britney spears for his award at the same time mark is going there to interview her and they both get kicked out by the same manager uh and so mark or dude is now out of luck he needs to finish his assignment so he can get paid to fund his next film uh, familiar <laughs> territory um and he sees in uh robert the opportunity to fool the news producer basically and make a movie with robert as his movie with britney spears mm-hmm. uh and they go on a cross-country road trip from milwaukee to uh new orleans uh filming all along the way getting in all kinds of hijinks uh with you know the end goal to meet the real britney uh so yeah i was watching a bit with uh my partner and it's like you know this is y2k canon this is like you (laughs) you could not make this movie even one year later than it was produced just like the confluence of the success of american movie with like the peak of britney spears is just like you could you couldn't pitch that to anybody today. They'd be like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" You know. But I'm surprised it got made at all at the time and distributed and reviewed. Um, but yeah, it does seem to be a a ghost uh, as far as like streaming goes. So best of luck uh, finding it not on DVD, but I I have it. Hit hit me up. Maybe I could send you a link. I don't know. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Uh, um, but I I do want to just have that go into kind of the immediate like aftermath of the release of this film and kind of, you know, having this successful documentary. And as far as like the mainstream, like Mark was on uh, David Letterman doing segments. Um, Mike again, got casted in the Todd Salons movie. Uh, I remember both of them having a weird animated cameo in an early season of Family Guy. They like pop right. out of a closet or something. <laughs> um, and and actually, Mark was in um, had a cameo in the Jet Li film, The One. No kidding. He, he plays like a mortician, and Jet Li like wakes up on his table, and he does like a classic like faint like. <laughs> And the, on, on the, the DVD for the one, there's an Easter egg called Mark Borchardt was in the one with Jet Li that's just like interviewing Mark talking about him being in the film. Wow. <laughs> so like <laughs> there are these um, 
I don't know. There was this like kind of buzz or like fervor uh, around these guys and like their success and like kind of lightning in the bottle thing. Uh, but for whatever reason, it didn't last. It, it dissipated. And, you know, maybe the the opportunities that presented themselves weren't like properly leveraged like they could have been. Um, you know, it's really hard to tell what exactly happened. There's there's another thing I, I watched on YouTube where Mark and Mike were doing a live commentary over Night of the Living Dead on IGN. Oh, wow. Um, so it's just like, yeah, all, all this kind of stuff that just and then they just kind of fade out, you know, and that going back to the Robert green piece, like, you know, that, that probably plays a role because there was this, this period of excitement and, and possibility that, that went like largely unfulfilled uh, beyond, you know, a few years after the release of the film. Yeah. I mean, he is still, like you said, you know, re- a relatively prolific guy at Mark Borchart and uh, active on twitter.com as well. Mm, certainly. Um, have seen him appear on various podcasts and and things like that. So Mark, come on the show sometime if you want to. <laughs> Please, you know, yeah. Open invitation. He he um he's been doing these like he's not on Cameo, but he's do it. You can email him and get like a personal video recording. And and my buddy Brian, when he came down with COVID from uh, attending a film festival screening his film, I got one for him from Mark. Uh, and it like, it made both of our weeks, you know, just like, (laughs) and then I sent him a link to his film too. And he watched it and he was like, you know, talking about how great it was. And like, so like, yeah, he's, he's out there doing stuff. He's, he's, he's ready to collaborate again, the Joe Parra show. Like he's, it's Mm -hmm. always a treat to see him on there. So, you know, I, I think the, the book is far from closed for Mark Borchardt and, and hopefully, you know, this film just came out, um, finally being restored for a Blu-ray just, mm-hmm. um, by Sony picture classics this month. Uh, it, it, uh, also, uh, just appeared on criterion channel. Again, it was there not too long ago for like a Sundance program. And now they're doing a Sony pictures classic program. So it's there for that. Awesome. Um, so, you know, hopefully, for, for the longest time, for whatever reason, uh, it was just not available anywhere unless you had a physical copy, mm-hmm. um, which I have a few of uh, in different formats. But like the, you know, we did in like 2020 for the Film Fest, we were doing like Twitch live streams and we did American Movie and Coven just because at the time they were not available to watch anywhere. And I had no idea what that was about, why that was the case. You know, I had assumed they were working on a restoration and they just taken it off briefly because Mm -hmm. there's going to be a new version available, which I think eventually did come to be the case. But like it it was criminal for the longest time how how again, a scant at best this film's availability was. And then just one last thing, just kind of situating American movie in this kind of canon of filmmaking documentaries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the ones most commonly pointed to are like Burden of Dreams and Hearts of Darkness. Yes. Um, and like, you know, Mark ranks right up there with Herzog and Coppola in terms of just like completely arresting and compelling subjects. But the filmmaking you know, documentary is just so rich. You know, there are those films I've mentioned. There's Overnight about the production of Boondock Saints. That's mm-hmm. just crazy. Um, and then one one I really wanted to touch on, um, full disclosure, because I distribute it, um, 
but also because I distribute it because I love it and it wasn't available anywhere uh, called Kid Icarus hmm. uh, made by a filmmaker named Mike Ott, uh, which he himself kind of calls a uh, community college American movie. And <laughs> that does a pretty good job of telling you what it is. And, you know, the, the characters are no less compelling. Uh, the the sort of found family it presents is no less rich than that in American movie. Um, and yeah, it's just very entertaining and humorous. Um, and that's on Tubi and Canopy. Um, but that filmmaker uh, made another film a number of years later called California Dreams that is one of my favorites uh, relative to like how widely known it is. I caught it. Uh, the good fortune to see it at the San Francisco International Film Fest a few years back mm-hmm. uh, when Rachel Rosen was still programming there. And uh, there is a direct connection to American movie that I don't want to spoil, but like made me jump out of my seat when it happened in that movie. Um, and that that film's on Canopy too, California Dreams. And, and maybe just giving Mike Ott uh, a, a last word here. I, I interviewed him at the time I was writing for film inquiry uh, around the release of this film. And I asked him about this question of exploitation because, you know, his film does deal with working class people who, you know, are not the conventional uh, people you see in, in, in films uh, all the time. And the way they're presented is, is similar to American movie. It's one that's, that doesn't gussy anything up. It presents reality as it is. Uh, so I asked him about that. And, and I, I bring this up a lot, his answer. I, brought, I remember posting it during some of the conversations around the rehearsal, the Nathan Fielder show. Um, so, so if you'll indulge me with this quote. Um, of course. I would say usually people who have this idea that exploitation usually says more about the way that they're viewing the characters than the way I'm viewing them. You know what I mean? It's kind of this idea that like you can only make a movie with handsome people and beautiful people that you can only make a movie with people like this as long as it's, oh, wow, their story's so sad and you have to feel bad for them, cry for them, which I think is actually much more insulting. It's like, why can't Patrick, Patrick is one of the characters in California Dreams, be the lead in a movie? Why is it not okay for him to be funny or why is it not okay for him to talk about sex? Like you only want to see movies about guys like Patrick as long as it's in like a Judd Apatow movie where he's being played by a handsome guy with glasses and a comb over. You know what I mean? Which I just think is so false. And if you're interested in those kind of stories, like sometimes life is uncomfortable and ugly and that's just how it is. So yeah, I mean, that kind of speaks for itself, but you know, in, in applying it to American movie, I think you, I guess this goes into just like broader conversations that happen a lot around film now about like, you know, do we always need to like fully identify with our protagonists? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do we need like moral certitude in our ability to enjoy a certain film? Right. Like, and how much uh, richer and more rewarding it is to engage with like the complexities of life and the ambiguities of individuals. Before I let you go, Arlen, uh, I asked Sean the same question when he came on, uh, but you are, you know, our resident Wiseman expert today. <laughs> sure. um, one of one of the two finest. And okay. uh, I, I asked I asked Sean at the time, for people who are unfamiliar with Wiseman, for folks who may just just be getting in uh, to Wiseman, where to start? 
what what films would you recommend uh you know it's it's a good question and what i'm i'm often turning over and reevaluating you know my initial answer used to just be titty cut follies because that's where i started and yeah. you know it put me well enough on the path that i'm on now that you know here i am so mm-hmm. so i don't think you could go wrong with doing that but i you know i think there's a sense to do watch titty cut follies and then that's it you know you don't keep going and and because that's his most well-known film it's the most controversial one it's the one like people want to see to kind of you know have seen it um but now you know deeper into his work and and more analytical about it you know i think my my favorite is welfare welfare is Mm -hmm. undeniable um it's just like a great canonical american work um i think maybe the film that's more like personally uh interesting is is model um because it's Mm -hmm. one that really shows you his whole like deal in terms of like approach and interests and formal um um just like you know deal um but also shows you like how rich and layered he can be in terms of like, yes, we're engaging with models and the modeling industry and the fashion industry, but we're also engaging with the whole idea of image production and media making and representational uh, film and television. Uh, And so he, he use, he, he's able to use these like very broad, um, titles as like an entryway into things he's much more interested in exploring uh so he's he he operates on so many levels at the same time so that that's a really good one to demonstrate that and then just um we're we're just about to wrap up the the talladega series uh also known as like the deaf and blind films um and i talked about on our deaf episode uh thinking that might be my new answer to this question because Mm. um i guess similar what i was talking about here it doesn't hold your hand uh especially when we're seeing um deaf students interacting with one another um they're doing so with asl and it's not subtitled and you know we're sort of as viewers left to figure out what's going on take visual cues from the mise-en-scene and and interpret the meaning which is the way to engage with weissman writ large like all of his films have you do that and this is one that like very plainly makes you do that in those moments that kind of can condition your viewership to expand that out into like all of his films and all those scenes arlen golden arlie as you said (laughs) uh Thank you so very much for being here today and, and hanging out with me for a couple hours. No, thank thank you so much for the invite and and or I should say that the acquiescence to my prodding. <laughs> Nonsense. <laughs> but, it was but, your, yeah. your your invitation on the show was always a foregone conclusion. You would you would always have a spot and always <laughs> do have a spot moving forward whenever you would like. Well, cool. Yeah, no, lo- love the show and and um, yeah, happy to to come back whenever i just i just listened to the blade one this week uh, your last episode and uh yeah you know if you're ever gonna do docs you know i'm i'm here for you 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Arlen. Where can uh, where can people find you around the internet? Uh, uh, sure. I'm, <laughs> well, as long as Twitter is there, I'm at Serial Burrito on Twitter. Um, the Drunken Film Fest Oakland account is just me, basically, on, on Twitter and <laughs> Instagram. That's DFF Oakland. So if Twitter goes away, you can you can find me at DFF Oakland um and and yeah uh what i i do you know weissman podcast listen to that that's on all where all your podcasts can be found and uh yeah well that's good good for now uh watch video project movies on canopy <laughs> <laughs> there we go lots of fun places absolutely sure. uh listen to weissman podcast Follow Arlen around. Uh, and from our end of things, you can follow us while Twitter is still alive and breathing uh, at Hit Factory Pod. You can subscribe to uh, our Patreon for biweekly bonus content at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. We'll give a shout out to Linda and Jesse K, our overlords. Thank you, as always. And we will catch you all the next time. See ya. Destroy what's already spent. You can blame on your hat, the faults in your head.